take a moment and pray as we move into our time in the Word today. So let's, let's seek the Lord together. Lord, thank you uh, all the way, for all the ways that you're working here in our church. But today as we come to you, specifically this moment, to hear from your Word, we want to soften our hearts and open ourselves to what you have to teach us. So give us uh, ears to hear and a soft heart to understand and a, that our minds, what we believe is true, would be brought into alignment with you and what you've revealed and who you are. And so uh, teach us now, Lord, and give us uh, just a, a, an inspiration of, what, of, of who you are and, and of what's true through your, through your word. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, we're continuing a series that we're calling Disciple by Doing, which is taking all of this, uh, even some of these practical things we were just talking about, using the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, to, to show how we can embody a whole life, wholehearted discipleship where every square inch is brought under the Lordship of Jesus and then becomes a witness to point to God's kingdom and to the truth of the gospel. And so today, we are talking about loving God with all of your mind. Now, it really connects to the first two, because once you have loved God supremely with all your heart, once, you're, once you have a, your inner being transformed in the gospel as you have a new identity as a child of God through Jesus' substitutionary death on your behalf, then the implications, there's implications for what you accept as true and how you engage your intellect and what you believe about the world to come under the lordship of Jesus in every way. So here's the most prominent way this affects us at this moment in our, in our, our time, in our culture. We must assert, we must believe, we must say that there is objective truth. There's revealed truth. There is Truth and truth that is exclusive, truth that is objective, that comes not only comes from God in who he is, but it's revealed to us by the spirit of God. And so what we're going to do is we look at a passage today in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is we're going to see a, a moment where Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to a culture that's not too different from our own, where there's debates about truth raging. And there's early Christians here in Corinth who were trying to find their footing, some doubting, some tempted to compromise, some continuing to live in their old ways. And Paul boldly reminds them that there is a solid foundation. There is revealed truth. There is the only way through Jesus and through the cross, even if it looks like foolishness to the world. So, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, 16. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. I'd love to get that in your hand today so you can read it along with us. Let me tell you a moment about Corinth before we kind of get into the text here. The ancient city of Corinth was known for its global commerce, it being a center of pagan religion, and for its promiscuity. It, it, it's sort of like the San Francisco of the ancient world. And, and Corinth was a city that consisted of Greeks and Jewish uh, people who, who were, and some in the church here, converts to Christianity. And Paul writes to them to show how uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts through the wrong-headed desires of both Greeks and Jews. That Greeks valued wisdom above all. And the Jews valued demonstrations of God's power above all. And here we see Paul preach Christ crucified 
which seems like foolishness to some and weakness to others. So let's read. Let's read our text today and see uh, how Paul speaks specifically to these Christians in Corinth, and then we'll kind of dive into what this means for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 2.16. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we, has, what we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught 
by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, here's what we're going to do as we approach this text. There's two major parts. What we're going to look at is first, Paul draws out a contrast between the concepts of wisdom and power. And he applies them then to his readers and to himself. So he talks about wisdom and power and he says, guess what? How you prove that? It's through you guys and through me, right? So that's the first part. Then the second part, Paul then says, well, how do we come to know the deep truths of God? How do we, how do we gain the mind of Christ, as he says? And he says it's because the Spirit reveals the message of the gospel. Okay, so those are our two main parts of our text. Let's jump right in. Go back to verse 18 with me, and we're going to look at God's wisdom and power. We're going to see these two concepts played against each other in a, in a contrast here. So go back to verses 18 and 19. Look at the text with me. You can see these central concepts are introduced right away. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Do you notice in your text there how it's kind of bracketed off? That means it's a quotation. If you look at the footnotes of your Bible, most of your Bibles will tell you where these quotations are from. And this, this quotation is from Isaiah 29. And whenever there's a quotation like this in your New Testament, the author, Paul, assumes you know the context. So we need to look at it. What is happening in Isaiah at this moment, right? If you know the book of Isaiah, it's my favorite book, okay? Love the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah have in the background all of these prophetic words to God's people, but in the background is an imminent attack by King Sennacherib of Assyria. He's currently leading his army through the northern parts of Israel, leaving a trail of destruction in these northern regions going town to town. And Sennacherib and the Assyrian army are on the doorstep of Jerusalem here in chapter 29. And this is a warning from God to the people, telling them that they're dangerously close to being wiped out as God's instrument of judgment through Sennacherib. Okay, so listen to the, the full paragraph of the quotation that Paul gives. Let me read it for you. It's on the screen here. You'll see. This is Isaiah 29, verses 13 to 16. You'll see our quotation right in the middle of this. This is the word of the Lord to Jerusalem. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. Here's our quotation. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do their work in darkness and think, who will see us? Who will know? 
who turned things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. <laughs> Do you see what Paul, what Paul is doing by quoting this passage? He is taking this warning and he's applying it to Corinth. He's saying, friends, dear, you're living, this, this church, you're living in a context, in a city, and in a people who pay lip service to God. A city where people think they can hide from God or carry on as if he doesn't exist or if he doesn't know what you're doing. You're living in a place where people have turned things upside down and elevated themselves to be God. It sounds, frankly, friends, a lot like our culture. See, the wisdom of this age, the age that we live in, will teach us to say to our maker, you know nothing, we'll take it from here. That's the attitude, that's the posture of our culture. To look at the potter and say you know nothing. But what does Paul say in response to this? Because he, he's setting the context. He's saying, look, this is the kind of environment you live in. But look at what we need to, we need to stand firm on or know. Pick it up in verse 20. Okay, I want to read this paragraph here. I can't say it any better than Paul does. And I want you to see him describe, this is his response to those who would trust in human wisdom and human power. And you're going to see those two words come up repeatedly. So pick this up with me in verse 20. Where is the wise person? Okay, remember that, that background here of Isaiah 29. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He goes on to say, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you see the words coming up over and over again of power and of the foolishness and of wisdom? He's contrasting this play on words of a reversal of what's going on in Corinth. He's saying, and this is so critical for all of us to understand, okay, as he does this play on words on wisdom and foolishness and on power and weakness. He's saying what the world calls wisdom is actually foolish because it results in them not knowing God. But what the world calls foolish, which is the cross of Christ, is actually wise because it results in salvation. He's saying the whole thing gets flipped upside down. And what I love about this is Paul's proof for this is he says, hey, look in the mirror and look at me. And, and if you go now, he uses himself and his readers as proof. Now, go, go to the text here in verse 26. If you keep going, Paul says that the believers in Corinth, they prove this upside down nature of the gospel 
because they embody none of the marks of Corinthian society, which traditionally associated greatness with power and education and being from a noble family. These are the things in Corinth that were most important in their culture. And Paul instead says, guess what? God used the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things. He's talking about the church. The people whom God has called, whom he has gifted his, uh, uh, salvation by his grace. He's talking about us too, friends. Because the display of his wisdom and power, as it's a work of salvation that he has done, means that we cannot boast in ourselves. This is the whole point. And Paul knows this personally. Okay, if you know later on in, in the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians, you see Paul actually actively struggling with suffering in his own life. And at one point later on in Second Corinthians, he says, God says these words to him as he's suffering. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Our weakness and humility and our need is the very like soil within which God's power and wisdom, his glory is, is sprouts forward in that, in that our weakness shows his strength. It's a demonstration of his power. This is why Paul talks about his own preaching in this way. He says it's not dependent on my own wisdom or my own strength, but that the, this is so key, friends, I want you to hear this because this is what my heart is too. The gospel is best preached through weakness. Without flashy eloquence and through a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because, as Paul says, so your faith would not rest on any human being, but on God's himself. Not on Paul. That it would not depend on the wisdom of Brent or any, I don't care who it is, that you would see the gospel being preached in, in weakness and in need so that it would rest on God's power. See, we have to recognize as we look at this text that every, every age has its, uh, has its wisdom or its sort of like way of trying to cope with and understand life, okay? Every age has its markers of success, its signals of, of ways that you've arrived. And our own society, if we just take a moment and think about the world we live in, has its own distinct moral hierarchy, like our own culture. Okay, and maybe a, a distinct example of this, uh, Sarah and I, for uh, five or six years or so, served in, uh, in church planting missionary work in San Francisco before we moved here. And so we were uh, living there for a few years, and I made it a point as we were there, treating it as a mission field, to understand San Francisco in as best a way as I possibly could. So I went to all 35 neighborhoods, rode all the bus lines, went to coffee shops. I was like, I want to know this place like the back of my hand. I want to understand these people. And in the city of San Francisco, what I learned is that there's a very neat, ordered moral hierarchy. The highest on the moral hierarchy is those who've rescued uh, a, a dog from the pound. If you have a rescue dog, you're at the top of the moral hierarchy. Because, and some of you have done this, and like you have rescue dogs. That's not saying it's a bad thing. It's a great thing. But if you go around to the dog park... And you're able to tell a sob story of how you saved this poor pooch from euthanasia and now they're living in your house and you love this dog. Like you're at the, you're at the peak of the moral Mount Everest, okay? 
And slightly below that are all kinds of other things. Uh, uh, people living in alternative lifestyles or, or, or going after a, a social cause, or maybe you do social work, or maybe you volunteer. Like You kind of work your way down from there from all these outward ways that you can show that you're a good and moral person. And then you have the business people and the tech bros down here. And at the very bottom are those who would claim exclusive truth. The Christians, the, the ones who believe in those myths, as people would say. They're the fools, the paupers of that moral hierarchy. There was a point where uh, you, I'd meet new people and I said to someone once, they said, well, what do you do? And sometimes I'm like, well, how do I answer that question? I said to someone, well, I'm a pastor, and their eyes got really big and they looked at me and said, wow, I've never met one of you before. <laughs> it was like I was an astronaut or something. <laughs> But what, what I love about Paul is he says to this church in Corinth, remember, these are, these are, this is the first generation or two of believers after Jesus is ascended. They're in this city that is known for all of the ways it stands against God. And he looks at them and he says, embrace the, the, the status of the weak and dishonorable fool because the only status that really matters, the only thing worth living for is your status before God. May it be so with us that if we have to, that we would be perceived as fools in the world's eyes if it means we stand firm in the gospel. And if we ever lose sight of the centrality of the gospel, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, of the work of God in the grand scope of history to bring about his kingdom through the forgiveness of sins, the new birth, and the everlasting blessedness of the face-to-face -face presence of God in the new heavens and new earth. If we've lost that, we've lost everything. Maybe I could say it a different way, because this is what Paul says in our passage. If we ever lose sight of the cross, where Jesus atoned for your sin and mine, then we're the real fools. I recently heard a sermon uh, by Don Carson, Dr. Don Carson, who's a New Testament theologian. I've mentioned him before. He's one of my favorites to read. Um, he was preaching on Romans chapter 3 and about the centrality of the cross in justification. And this is what he says. I want you to see it on the screen here. He says, the fundamental question that the Bible asks is, granted our sin, how shall we be made right with God? Of course, there's all the social and horizontal questions to ask, all the ethical instructions, all the different genres of literature, the exhortations and voices of praise, the lamentations, the depictions of God, the apocalyptic expectations of what is to come. There is the hope set forth, but at the heart of all of it is the question, how shall we be right with God? And if we get that wrong, we have nothing. Nothing but moralism, and false hope and idolatry. Friends, may we say what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2? He looks at these believers and he says, For I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gotta start there. Everything else hinges on that. And this doesn't make sense from a worldly point of view. It seems like foolishness, it seems like weakness. But Paul's whole point is that Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf, that it is the pinnacle expression of wisdom and power. 
The glory of God displayed as the son of God is lifted up on a tree and hanging there to die for you and for me to redeem us and his creation. That it is the pinnacle expression of wisdom and power. It's the most real reality that's ever existed. It's the highest moral achievement in history. It is the single event that confounds the wisdom of this age. And without it, we have nothing. So the question is, and this is where Paul goes, how do you come to believe in this most profound display of God's wisdom? Paul calls it, how do we have the mind of Christ? How do we know that it's really true? He says we need the Spirit of God to show us, to change us. So let's look at that next section, right? When we talk about having the mind of Christ, picking it up in verse 6 of chapter 2. So go back to the text with me and listen to these words that Paul says in verses 6 through 9. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. So let me ask you, how do we know that Christ crucified is really God's wisdom, the ultimate revelation of what is wise and true? The answer is it's revealed to us by the Spirit of God. There's something about that inner conviction because at the end of the day, it's not just assenting to certain concepts about God. It's an inner transformation and conviction of the truth that actually transforms. That's a work of God. That's a divine work. What I love about this passage is that I find it interesting, Paul, when he says Christ crucified is the center. He doesn't immediately go to historical evidence or logical proofs. Now, those things matter. They do. And if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection, he immediately talks about physical evidence and firsthand accounts of the resurrection. Okay? Because it, it's real. It happened, he says, but what he does in this chapter is he begins by emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in illuminating our understanding of the gospel. And what Paul is doing is he's saying that the message of the cross, it is logical, it's historical, it's plausible, but the point to the church in Corinth is this. If, even if you present that case... Even if you say there's, you point to the evidence why someone needs Jesus, they may still look you in the eyes and say, you fool, that's just foolishness. Because it takes a work of the spirit of God within to reveal that it's really true. See, we need to consider and maybe think about uh, the contours of the kind of context we live in today. There's a lot of nuance to how this applies to our culture. 
Um, we need to think about how, how people struggle with this sometimes, or how try and struggle to understand what is true, and how do I understand truth? Uh, there's a, I've mentioned before, and I just love reading him, a, a missionary and theologian named Leslie Newbigin, who uh, wrote a book back in the 1980s called Foolishness to the Greeks. He literally titled his book after this chapter in 1 Corinthians. And in this book, he explains our culture so well. Newbegin says that one of the fundamental markers of modernity, of the modern world, is that there's now a divide between facts and beliefs. I've shared this before with some of you, and so the, but it bears repeating, okay? There's a divide that's assumed in our culture, but it hasn't, it hasn't always been this way, but this is the world we find ourselves in now. On one side, facts, this is what Newbegin says, facts in our culture are viewed through a sort of logical, scientific lens and are presented as public truth. Facts are something that impose themselves on everyone and we all have to believe them. That's what our culture will tell you. This is what facts are. Then beliefs today are now viewed through a sort of mythological lens or a, 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 a lens that's presented as private truth. These are personal things. And what Newbegin says is once you adopt this dichotomy, which again, is, it's an innovation in our culture. This isn't the way that always, history always was. Once you adopt this innovation, then faith moves to the private sphere. Beliefs become personal opinion. He said, this is the crux of one of the problems in our society. And the way it sounds in the, on the street language is it sounds something like this. You can believe whatever you want to believe as long as it's your truth and you don't make me believe it. That's what they mean by the private, by the personal, by the inward. But not everything, what I find fascinating and, and sort of even schizophrenic about our culture is that not everything follows this logic in our society. Gender identity, for example, is one area where, where, where this, this line gets blurred. Where personal feelings or desires or the self-perception of who I am, that private truth, crosses over into the public realm. Public facts. It becomes a situation where an inner desire must be recognized by everyone in the public sphere. But the irony of this is that once you go down that road, once you decide that meaning in my life is going to be created from within and I get to decide it, it requires an audience to approve it and accept it. Or else it loses its meaning. It's fragile. It has to be celebrated, it has to be recognized, it has to become a public display, or that meaning loses its power. It loses its influence, it loses its meaning for you. But here's the difference for us as Christians. As human beings made in God's image, designed with great purpose, as blood-bought children of God, loved by His grace, our identity is conferred upon us. It is gifted to you. It is designed and created by an almighty creator. It is secured by Christ's blood. It's proven by his resurrection. It's promised as a sure hope in, 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 in the heaven, in, in the new heavens and new earth forevermore. It is not a self-defined identity or subjective truth that depends on the trustworthiness of my inner desires. 
Once you adopt that, you have to say that human beings are inherently good and my inner desires are trustworthy if you want to go down that road. But I'll say, look at the scope of human history, even the last hundred years, and tell me that human beings aren't evil <laughs> or how much hatred there is or how much division. We need to understand this, friends, that looking inward for self-made meaning is a false gospel. It will destroy you. And what Newbegin says is that one of the ways for the church in our culture to have what he calls a missionary encounter, like we're now, we're now missionaries living in the mission field, all of you. He says one of the ways to have a missionary encounter with the modern world is to point out the inconsistency of the public versus private truth and to insist that there is revealed objective truth. Like there is truth and, and, and we can't just let the things that are the claims of religion or of Christianity be reserved only to the private sphere of private opinion. That we have to show how the gospel of Jesus Christ affects every part of our lives. It is public truth. It is cosmic truth. It affects everything. See, we have a prophetic call to witness to these truths like this in the world. And, and, and yet we need to recognize that, that, that Paul's very specific about how truths of God are received. He says, or see it on the screen here at the end of our passage in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says this, we, this is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Let me, let me come back to our central question. How do we love God with all of our minds? How do we take captive every thought under the lordship of Jesus? We do it by embracing the fact that there is objective, revealed, eternal truth. God. And then God's good design for us. And then we need to not only assent to that reality, but then open ourselves up to receive it. Because as Paul says so clearly here, we need to surrender to the Spirit's revelation of who Jesus is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let our hearts and minds come to know the deep spiritual realities of God and his good plans. That it may be by a demonstration of the Spirit's power, as Paul said. And so because of that reality, we need not, because it's a work of God, we need not be afraid to say that the gospel is public truth. We need not uh, uh, shy away. To, we can be bold to graciously and winsomely stand firm on God's word, even if the world looks upon us as fools. Maybe I'll, I'll close with this. May, may we be like David when Saul's daughter, Michal, said after he made a fool out of himself celebrating that the ark was brought back to Jerusalem. This is what David says in response after he's dancing around. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this. Call me a fool if you want. I stand on the gospel. There is one gospel. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, we want to live into that reality. I pray that these dear brothers and sisters in this room, that you would bring all of our mind under the lordship of Jesus, that our intellect, what we believe, what we know is true, the way that we think, our thoughts will be brought captive to Jesus. That, Lord, you would show your goodness, your beauty, and your good design as revealed to us in your word, at the center through the cross of Christ, and then expanding out from there to touch every part of our life, to be displayed in every good and beautiful truth that is in this world. All truth is yours. Let our minds come under your lordship, Jesus. As we say, all we have is you, Lord Jesus. Without you, without the cross, we have nothing. Let us praise you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.